When I started, the average career was seven years. And now, it's four years. The average career's gone down. And so we have no mentors, we have no seniors. We're constantly grinding through junior game developers. We have no idea how to make games. They have a shit time, and then they leave, you know? Particularly as a woman in the industry, I look at this and feel like it means inclusion, belonging. We need to understand that we need to be included, that every person out on the job site needs to be included and belongs on that job site and in the offices. The power that Arnatov delivered to this, um, to this thing is, I think, the reason that it's become such a, a touchstone. It is hard for people to look at. Um, and it's hard for people to deal with the fact that their kids are looking at this every day. And I think that there's a, there's, there is an issue there. I curate the top 10, and then the next day they come in and they get to vote. And so right now we have this cactus, and uh, we're, I'll, have to check, I'll have to check what it is, but it was neck and neck between Kanye and Shrek. And they're bizarrely excited about it. Like, they're really excited. Vote for Kanye! You're listening to the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show focusing on industrial, social, and workplace issues, talks with Mays, an organizer from the Games Workers Union. Then... From Talking Smart, the podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers, Be For All, the Belonging and Excellence for All project. Next, Town Destroyers, where Week Radio looks at an important new documentary film about the Victor Onatov murals and the ongoing battles over history in our schools. Our last piece today comes from OEA Grow, the podcast from the Oregon Education Association. Today, they share advice from veteran educator Rob Hillhouse. That's all coming up on this edition of the Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we like to call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. Recently, I came across a good news story about the newest union on the scene, the Game Workers Union. Okay, so you're Maze and you're um, part of a union that many people wouldn't have ever heard of. Yeah, so Game Workers Australia, we started as a grassroots 
international activist organisation in 2018. And then just on May Day this year, on May 8, um, we became a national trade union for game developers um, as part of the Professionals Australia family. So, yeah, yeah, we're a new union. Oh, that's so fantastic. Now, of course, the digital world is something that many people find quite scary. So what is it that you, how do you actually, uh, are you freelancers effectively or do you work for uh, companies? Yeah, so many of us are. We, we're pretty evenly split between half of the industry being contractors not all of them living the awesome freelance life, a lot of them under sham contracts. Um, and then the other half being under those larger businesses as employees. We have a pretty split focus between contractors and ethical small business and co-ops as well, as well as the bigger AAA Hollywood budget style of games. So yeah, we're across the whole thing and everything that we do really tries to focus on both ends of the industry, yeah. Yeah, and so how do you actually uh, go in and battle for your members? Yeah, it's pretty funny, you know, because people think of a right of access as people going into your workplace that we're coming into Discord and Slack channels. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess we have, we're, We've got people who aren't being paid um, to the award, to the Professional Employees Award, so they're not even reaching that minimum wage. And then we have people who, you know, they're running small businesses or they're creating games just with their mates and they need help to run an ethical small business. Or, you know, yeah, there's, there's a real range. So recently, you know, we've done tax workshops for employees and for contractors and we've done um, media workshops and we've done co-op workshops so that people can you know we hear a lot like who am I going to unionize against my mate from uni or my mate from work and it's like no we unionize with those people and we create a more sustainable business. And also May, how, how did you get your expertise and why are you so interested? So I've been working in video games in audio for um, just over 11 years now. And I guess Tim Colwell, who's my co-convener of Game Workers Australia, he came down to a conference and was like, this is what unionisation is. This is why we need it in games. And I've learned from there. And I think it's been a really good journey because games industry has only existed in this kind of neoliberal era where our knowledge around worker rights and our knowledge around what unions are has been just totally dissipated by government and different policies and you know that kind of thing we've only existed since the 70s oh, and also neoliberalism and exactly. the deindustrialization. exactly exactly so being able to kind of learn at the same pace as the rest of the industry we have no idea there's no traditions of worker movements you know um, that's been but really there is a sense of unfairness. There is, you know, we're constantly told this rhetoric around, oh, every year $9 billion comes into the Australian games industry and we're bigger than film and music combined and this kind of thing, yet we're not even being paid minimum wage, half of us, you know? And when we're part of the Professionals Australia family, we're working with people from Google and IBM and they're getting paid so much more than we are for similar skills and it's just like, hang on, you know, we're sitting in between arts and software, so we're a passion-run industry and everyone thinks that we're super replaceable because everyone wants to work in games 
that we've got these highly technical skills. Where do we sit? You know, and we've just been told, well, you know, oh, you work in an office, you must have a cushy job. But no, we're we're it's all about deadlines. Artists. Yes, and the deadlines. So uh, some of the issues that we really unionised around was crunch, so overworking with no extra pay, um, and that crunches doesn't just come up. You know, it starts, oh, we have a deadline coming up, but then it's just normal. It's just 12 hours a day, every day. Um, other ones... And burnout, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. So um, GDC, the Game Developers Conference, um, it's like 30,000 people go there each year in San Francisco. They have a survey um, that they do every year, and they measure the average career in games. And when I started, the average career was seven years. And then people would go to um, general software or they would go to other media and marketing communications or they would reskill into another industry. And now it's four years. The average career has gone down. And so we have no mentors. We have no seniors. We're constantly grinding through junior game developers who have no idea how to make games. They have a shit time and then they leave, you know? So, yeah. There's Tell me about your membership. I mean, uh, how big is the union? We are kicking well above our weight for for a union that has really only had a paid membership since May. Um, we're doing amazingly well, and you know, we we're part of all of the big industrial conversations and part of government, and we even hear from um, state funding bodies and national funding bodies that. When people are doing their grant applications, they're asking about ethical business and they're asking about tax and about legal rights and how that they can make sure that they're actually running their business properly because of what conversation we've added to the industry and the community. So, yeah, I think we're doing pretty well. We've got a way to go. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely... We're improving the industry already by existing, yeah. Good on you. Thank you. Thanks for being interested. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. You're listening to Talking Smart. The official podcast of the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. We have a special guest host this episode, Dushah Hockett, founder and executive director of Safe Places for the Advancement of Community and Equity, or SPACES, a Washington, D.C.-based organization that is working with SMART and SMACNA to move forward with the Be For All project. At the SMART Leadership Conference in San Francisco in August, Hockett sat down with SMART General President Joseph Sellers, SMACNA CEO Aaron Hilger, and SMACNA Past President Angie Simon to discuss how both organizations are working together to build a thriving industry where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. Welcome to this special podcast focused on the Belonging and Excellence for All initiative, also known as Be For All. My name is Desha Hockett. I'm part of the Be For All staff team, and we are here in sunny, downtown San Francisco for SMART's 2022 Annual Leadership Conference. And I'm joined by Aaron Hilger, CEO of SMACNA, 
also joined by Angela, AKA Angie Simon, <laughs> who's the immediate past president of SMACnet. Thank you. And last but never ever least, joined by Joseph Sellers Jr., general president of SMART. And we're here to talk about B for All. I know uh, the, the belonging and excellence for all initiative, that's been a vehicle for, for how we sort of bring the industry together. And a lot of people are asking the question, well, what is B for all? It sounds fancy. Uh, we're using all these, these great words, but at the end of the day, what is it exactly? And so I wanna invite all of you to weigh in on that question. What does B for all mean to you? And why is it important? Why don't we start off with you, Joe? Yeah, so I think it's really respect and dignity for all, right? B for all. It's uh, understanding and walking maybe in other people's shoes. We enter a workplace, we enter a job site, and there's a whole bunch of people usually on that job, and they need to feel welcome. They need to understand, and the people on that job need to understand that we have a job to do, and we need to go on that job and work together and collaborate together and, and have good teams that really do work. For me, particularly as a woman in the industry, I look at this and feel like it means inclusion, belonging. We need to understand that we need to be included, that every person out on the job site needs to be included and belongs on that job site and in the offices, and we need to look at it that way. It's important to me. It really needs to become our culture. Just like safety is our culture, it needs to become our culture. We need to be fair to each other, respect each other, and belong. And for me as a woman in the industry, it just excites me because I can see that we can make some changes. And I would like, in the next 10 years, our industry to start to look a little different than we do now. And it's really been something that I would love to see. Um, I'd love to see more women. I'd love to see my, more minorities respect, dignity, walking in each other's shoes, inclusion, belonging. Aaron, what you got for us? It's fun to go after these two because <laughs> they use all of the great words I want to use first, which is perfectly fine because it shows how much we're on the same page on this and there should be no question that I don't think there's any daylight at all between where the union uh, and SMACNA stands. We're really together on this topic. Fundamentally, I believe this goes back to what you learned in kindergarten, or maybe you called it the golden rule, or whatever you decided to call it, is treat people the way you want to be treated. And I believe it's already happening. Our industry is becoming more diverse. There are more women in the industry. There are more minorities in the industry. And the union and the contractors association and the group of contractors that embraces that trend, that welcomes that trend, that says we want you on our job sites with open arms, will become aware of the things that we may need to do better and really do them better and succeed, will be the group that wins the war of workforce development, that will keep and retain our people. So friends, uh, you just heard uh, the voices of uh, Angela, AKA Angie Simon, immediate past president of SMACNA, Joseph Sellers Jr., uh, general president of SMART, and Aaron Hilger, CEO of SMACNA. And I want to thank the three of you for, for having this conversation. And thank you, right. thank, thank you, Nisha. Excellent. Thank, thank you for yeah. everybody's time. My son, I can't imagine him walking into that school being told, meet me at the dead Indian. It's not right. Our children deserve to come to a school where they feel honored and respected the right to learn without hostile environments. Generational trauma follows us.
Victor Arnatov was one of the most prolific New Deal artists in San Francisco. Those murals was a critique on American history. A very early attempt to reframe our understanding of the infallible nature of our founding fathers. This is Steve Zeltzer with Workweek, and that was the trailer to a new film, Town Destroyer, by Alan Snittow and Deborah Kaufman. This film is very powerful, and we interviewed them about the local, national, and international implications of this story. And joining us are the filmmakers Alan Snittow and Deborah Kaufman. There was Snittow Kaufman Productions. So welcome to Workweek. Thanks for having us. Hi. So this this latest film, uh, Town Destroyer, uh, is about the struggle if, over the Victor Onatoff murals in San Francisco at the George Washington High. Did you know about these murals before uh, this whole struggle of uh, whether or not they should be destroyed or covered over? We didn't know about these particular murals, but we were fans of Arnatov because of Coit Tower and um, in other murals that he's done around the city. And there's so much great art around San Francisco, including um, works by other artists like Diego Rivera. And, um, you know, it was just calling out to us because we wanted to see these murals once the controversy erupted. And, um, you know, it ties into broader issues than art and censorship. This is really taking place at a time of racial reckoning and the pulling down of uh, Confederate monuments. And it just was calling out to us in terms of trying to take a, a controversial subject and look at it from multiple points of view and, um, you know, try to break the binary because there were, you know, the arguments were really on both sides so angry and uh, so locked into their positions, we, we felt like it would be really good to take a step back and try to understand, um, understand the um, points that both sides were trying to make. Now, Victor Arnatov, you in your film talk about his early history. He was actually uh, a Russian white immigre. He supported the uh, uh, the white guards in the Russian Revolution. He was opposed to the Russian Revolution. Then he comes to the United uh, the United States and Mexico and becomes a communist. Right under the influence of Diego Rivera, who's you know who he worked with for many years before he did the controversial murals at Washington High, which are really. Uh, complex and gorgeous and a provocation, um, telling the story of George Washington, both as a hero, but also as a slave owner and a uh, person who, you know, directed the genocide of Native Americans. So it's a really complex telling of American history that at the time was a critique, one of the earliest critiques of George Washington. Um, and now I think is, is misunderstood in a way because of the power of the image of a dead Native American in the center of the lobby of the school, which is very much a provocation and, um, you know, hurts people's feelings. And yeah. the, the superintendent, Vince Matthews, said that he was shocked when he went into the, uh, saw that. I, it's hard to believe he's from San Francisco, but there was no well, sign. A lot, a lot of people are shocked by it. I, you know, we talked, um, uh, uh, you know, we interviewed uh, Dewey Crumpler, you know, a great, great artist in the in the Bay Area who did the response murals that were demanded by the uh, uh, students in the Black Panther Party back in the in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And um, he said the first time he, he saw the murals, he was going, he was at uh, Balboa, I think, a high school in San Francisco. He was going to a football game. And so he went through there 
and uh, he saw these pictures and he was outraged. He thought, how could they have this in the middle of a school? So this is, you know, Dewey, who then learned more about what it was to be an artist and so forth, and, and, and then eventually was trying to convince the students at the school that this was a critique of American history rather than an, a, a further oppressive uh, uh, image. Um, but it, the, the power that Arnatov delivered to this, um, to this thing is, I think, the reason that it's become such a, a touchstone it is hard for people to look at. Um, and it's hard for people to deal with the fact that their kids are looking at this every day. And I think that there's a, there's, there is an issue there. Um, and uh, you have to uh, you know, appreciate both Arnatov, but also think about, well, you know, if we had an artistic rep representation of uh, Buchenwald, of uh, you know, a pile of bodies at Buchenwald, would you want your kids to be walking by that every day? Uh, you know, it's history. Uh, it would be really important that it be taught, but it's tough. It really is, it's very, it's very hard. You know? And for California Native Americans, um, you know, the past is alive and it's a very um, horrendous past and, uh, you know, the genocide of California Indians. So, um, this is very, you know, really real and very raw for them. So it's really imperative that people kind of listen to each other and have a little empathy, both sides, because I think the arguments um, against censorship and for understanding what Arnatov was trying to do are also really important. Thanks for joining us. And we've learned a lot already today in this discussion about this important film, Town Destroyer. So thanks for producing it. And I think it should be shown in every classroom in San Francisco. Uh, for young people to have a discussion debate on these issues. So I think that adds to the wealth of knowledge and understanding of our own history. Thanks, Steve. It's, uh, it's fun to talk to you. Thanks, Thank Steve. You. You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association. OEA Grow is by members for members. In season four, members discuss back to school issues and ideas with Kayla Potter. Hello and welcome. I am Kayla Potter and I am joined today by Rob Hillhouse. In this episode, our veteran educator will be sharing some advice and things they wish they knew when they first started. Hi, Rob. Can you introduce yourself and where you're at, what you do, and how long you've been in the profession? Hi, Kayla. Um, thank you for having me here. Um, I, I guess I've been in education now for 20 years. Um, and right now I'm teaching uh, social science, sixth grade and seventh grade at a middle school in uh, Beaverton, Oregon. Um, but I've kind of been around a little bit in my career. I've taught in Europe and I've taught in Texas and I've taught uh, college level and high school level. And so, um, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of find it hard to believe that I'm here as a veteran educator because I kind of refuse to believe that that's how many revolutions around the sun we've gone but I guess here we are right in an earlier episode I spoke with an early career educator Malik White and he talked about teacher authenticity what are your views on being your authentic self in the classroom and do you find that helps motivate students 
uh, yeah, I, I, I teach middle school. I teach sixth graders and seventh graders. And anytime that you open up and you, uh, and you show a part of your, your real, your real life, um, there's an excitement there. Like the kids feel like they're getting a window into your world. Um, and also like, uh, the more, the more examples we can provide the kids of adults doing adulting stuff, the better, right? Because that looks different for everyone. Something that I'm really committed to is, uh, establish empathy as much as I can, uh, as broadly as I can, as frequently as I can, because I don't think that kids organically bounce into your room. Uh, Maybe this is a middle school thing. But I don't think kids organically <laughs> bounce into your room as fully rounded, empathically sensitive people. Um, and so having opportunities where they can see uh, into windows into other people's lives, uh, they can make connections. Um, here's another here's another very funny example from my classroom, right? Funny, strange, perhaps. Um, I have a number of plants in my classroom. And I have these little wooden uh, name tags. And this is a thing we do a couple of times a year. Whenever I get a new plant, the kids get to name it. So when they come to class, there's a, a, a form they complete and they suggest names, right? And then I'll go home and I'll look at the names and I'll choose the top 10 that I think will work. You know, obviously there's all kinds of stuff in there. Um, mm-hmm. So I choose, I curate the top 10. Um, and then the next day they come in and they get to vote. Like, what one do what one do they want? Um, and so right now we have this cactus, and uh, we're I'll have to check I'll have to check what it is. But it was neck and neck between Kanye and Shrek. That were the two. That <laughs> for. But like, and it sounds so it sounds so small and so stupid. But like, my kids come to a classroom where they've played a part in naming the plants, and it sounds like such a small thing. But like. Um, it's a little bit of ownership too. it's a little bit of ownership and they're bizarrely excited about it like they're really excited vote for Kanye vote for Kanye like you know what I mean they're like they're into it um, and and I guess I guess where I'm going with this with like be your authentic self is uh, everyone talks about classroom climate and everyone talks about it as something that just like oh this person has it or this person doesn't have it well everyone's got a classroom climate right let's establish that but like as a social studies teacher right we know we know that a, a climate is the aggregate of daily weather so it doesn't do any good to say like oh you should have a, you know a better classroom climate or you know you should blah 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 because it's the aggregate of the daily weather so your climate is the sum of the weather that was in your classroom in each of your classes or every single day and that's your climate and that's your climate so even though it sounds really stupid that like oh we have this thing where like they name a plant that's a positive uh that's a nice day of weather that over time when you zoom out builds into a sense of climate that the kids associate with your space right and there's lots of other things you can do like taking the time to you know, make sure you're getting a kid's name right. Or if a kid is experimenting with different names, being current with their names on your seating chart. There's lots of things you can do that add up to the, that create positive daily weather that adds up to a classroom climate that makes it that you are happy to come to school. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for sharing your perspectives with us. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, And until next time, OEA, goodbye.
That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Our roundup, <clears throat> our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes, and you'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show. Our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.